with Scott Allen. Hello, I am Scott Allen, and thanks to my daughter Kate for developing the intro to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast, where we offer a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests help us explore timely topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. If you haven't done so, please click subscribe so you automatically, seamlessly stay in the know when we publish new episodes. Likewise, please provide me with feedback. What do you like? What do you dislike? And what else would you like to know? And now, today's show. Today on the podcast, I have Bob Reamer, and he is an associate professor. He's at the United States Air Force Academy. He is the director of the Leadership Core Curriculum at the United States Air Force Academy. He has an incredible career, a PhD from Penn State. Uh, Bob, you were in theater in Afghanistan, and you were in charge of training and education for the, the Afghani Air Force. I can't wait to explore that a little bit. You're publishing. You're publishing. I mean, you have a lot going on, and so... Uh, maybe fill in some blanks. What have I missed? And introduce yourself a little bit to our listeners. Well, of course. Thank you, Scott. I, I can't thank you enough for the opportunity to have this conversation. You know, we've had a number of conversations over the last couple of years we've, as we've talked about student development all, but this is this is really kind of the first chance we've had to have this type of conversation in depth. Yeah. Uh, and it, hel- it helps that we're uh, on, the, on the verge of the semester, but not quite there yet. So we're focused <laughs> on, on syllabi and some of those good things, some of those administrative things. So, you know, I think it might be helpful, actually, for some of your listeners who may not be familiar with what the Air Force Academy is yeah. uh, to share a little bit there first, you know, so the Air Force Academy is both a public university and a military service academy. So our mission, uh, like a lot of institutions, is to educate and inspire men and women uh, who are really motivated to go out and do incredible things in their fields. I think the nuance that your listeners need to understand is that we specifically do this. Our graduates become officers of character. And, and they serve predominantly, there's a few exceptions, but predominantly our officers, our graduates go on to serve in the United States Air Force yeah. and now in the United States Space Force. So we have just over 4,000 students at any given time, about 30 programs of study. Uh, you know, there's, uh, we have got a great division one athletic program. Um, and, and we, our student to faculty ratio, we're, we're sitting right at around uh, eight students for every single faculty member. So, wow. uh, so that tells you that we're a teaching institution. And, you know, so as a military faculty member uh, and for, for my other faculty members, the Air Force relies really heavy on us uh, in the areas, particularly in teaching and in service. Yeah. Well, and what I love about your, your background or another element that I love about it is that you had an undergraduate degree in engineering, correct? I did. I did. Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know that I quite figured out what the right path for me was at that point in time. Uh, it was an incredibly uh, valuable experience. I yeah. learned a lot about myself, what I was capable of learning, and it really set me on a on a, on a path that I never imagined that it would have uh, when I was leaving the institution. Yeah, oh, that's wonderful. Well, let's let's start about the path that you took to get into to training, development, education. I think that's really interesting because to make that shift from engineering as an undergrad to then throughout your career shifting into training and education, uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so that that shift actually started as I was completing my degree at the academy. 
Okay. I had a really close friend uh, who saw something in me that I did not know about myself at the time. And so she had connected me. I was uh, just a few months out from graduation. I was uh, knew that I was getting ready to head off to pilot training. Wasn't sure how much time it was going to take for me to get in the pipeline. So I was looking for a few options. Um, we, we call them casual lieutenants. There's nothing casual about it. You're a hard, hard at work from day one uh, once, once you report for duty. But I was looking for different options. And, and she connected me with our, our, our director of the Academic Success Center here at the Air Force Academy. Yeah. And so I ended up spending my first year in the Air Force as a learning skills instructor. Ah. And so I worked with students who were in, incredible. They had a lot of high potential, uh, but that potential was not necessarily grounded from an academics performance perspective. Sure. So, so the, I mean, statistically speaking, these cadets were going to be behind their classmates academically. Uh, they had a history statistically of washing out at a higher rate. Okay. And so because of that friend's investment in me, um, I ended up spending a year working uh, directly underneath the, the mentorship of some highly dedicated faculty and had an incredibly rewarding experience where I got to lead young cadets and help them to discover the value that they added to the institution. So, wow. you know, I learned the value of building relationships with students. I helped, uh, I was in a position where I learned how to help students uncover their hidden talent and areas that they needed to grow and let them kind of choose the path that where they were motivated, where they wanted to invest, where they wanted to get something more out of their experience in the academy. And I think I also discovered some initial insights in how important it was to help someone understand the progress that they were making. Uh, so, so, you know, that was an incredible year, had an incredible experience uh, working with faculty. I knew as I was heading out the door about a year after graduation yeah. uh, and headed the, the pilot training that I wanted to get back to the Air Force Academy, uh, that I wanted to be a part of education and development. And so uh, what was neat was I took that foundation I learned in that year as a lieutenant in our student or academic success center. Yeah. And, and I started applying it. Uh, it you know, I saw the lessons, you know, I remember showing up the uh, first day of pilot training, you check in and, uh, you know, not a whole lot, everything was paper-based at that point in time. And I had a stack of pub publications that was probably about three feet high that I was expected more or less to commit to memory. Wow. So, so one, I, I took those lessons and I applied them to my own uh, uh, approach to learning and really had it, had a a spark that was kindled for lifelong learning at that point in time. And I think I looked at that experience differently uh, because of that, uh, that time as a learning skills instructor. I wasn't as thinking about it as much as learning a technical skill as I was thinking about what, what was I learning? How was I learning it? How Love could it. I translate that to other people? And so it took about 10 years. So I flew uh, for the Air Force for about 10 years and Air Mobility Command, so big, heavy airplanes all around the world and all in all kinds of places. But about 10 years after leaving the academy and heading off the pilot training, I got the chance to come back. And the Air Force had picked me up and sent me to a, uh, a master's degree program where they really invested in my soft skills as a leader. Yeah. Uh, and so that's a, it was a partnership program with the University of Colorado here in Colorado Springs, where we, I got to spend a year with 19 other uh, high potential officers. And we really got to dive deep into leadership. And, and the program is, was set in a counseling department. So wow. we really got to spend a lot of time talking about those soft skills that are really essential to influencing and guiding others. Well, isn't that interesting? It's so interesting to me where, where 
academic leadership programs are housed in institutions of higher education. Sometimes it's the College of Agriculture. Sometimes it's in yes. counseling, education. Sometimes, it, rarely, it's in the business school. But in, and then, so then you you at some time later go on to do a PhD in IO Psych at Penn State. That's correct. Yeah. 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 So so when I completed my ma- that that master's degree at UCCS. I got to serve as a leader developer for three years here at the Air Force Academy. So I worked both at our prep school and at the Air Force Academy and, and was responsible on a, in a given year for about 100 cadets. And so these cadets have all kinds of experiences. I kind of hit some of those stats earlier, you know, the Dig- Division One athletes. We also have like 90 clubs. And the cadets within their units, within their organizations are responsible for the leadership and the guidance and the, and the accomplishment of the mission on a daily basis. Yeah. So, you know, I got a lot of practical experience right off the bat. Um, and, and during that time period, I was able to start leveraging that master's degree and teaching our, our core leadership curriculum that looked a lot different 10 years ago, but yeah. teaching cadets about leadership in academic settings as well. And that's what really opened the door for me to head off to Penn State and the study industrial and organizational psychology. And as you think about your role as the director of, of curriculum, leadership curriculum at the institution, what are some questions that that you all are pondering as we think about this i i oftentimes on the podcast will will refer to developing leaders as it's a bit of a puzzle i mean there's a, a number of different ways we can approach this there's a number of different lenses we can look through what are you thinking about right now what what puzzles you <laughs> or what are you working on that you're excited about that's a great question I think, you know, and I, I certainly don't think you want to have this conversation devolve into a, a political commentary on what's going on in the nation right now. But I'll use that as a backdrop <laughs> okay. uh, to simply say that, uh, you know, regardless of your political views, I think all of us could could quickly agree that our, our nation really has a great need for highly effective leaders. I think this has always been true. Yeah. Uh, I think you can look back at the at the birth of our nation, uh, whether, you, whether you look at... Uh, pioneers and colonists who had to figure out how to make things work, you know, 400 years ago, yeah. or if you're, or if you're, or if you're looking at how do we set up the ideology, how do we make sure that everyone has a voice? You know, those, the leadership is, is always been kind of central to, uh, the effectiveness and the, and the health of our nation. I think one of the great challenges that I see today, we've seen a great proliferation of leadership ideas, plans, programs, products, yep. uh, you, you name it, right? And so, and you just hit on it, right? Just in terms of as as a discipline, if I can call it that, um, you, you, we don't really have objective standards. Yep. You know, I think, I think there's a place, if you went to a university, there's a place you would expect to find students who are studying medicine. And odds are it's not going to be in the, the Department of Agriculture, right? <laughs> as an example. And, 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 and it, it and please don't get me wrong. I think each of these schools serve such important. Uh, oh, of course. But you're right. Uh, for you're society. right. Yeah. But but you know, we just don't have those standards. I think when we have that little bit of standardization, then then it's really hard to know as a consumer, as an educator, what it is we really ought to be doing sometimes to yeah. better our organizations and uh, to better our society. You know, so you know, an example that comes to mind. You know, I think if you've ever lived in an area where you've been affected by a natural disaster, whether that be tornadoes, hailstorms, hurricanes, fires, we've seen some of those in Colorado in recent years. 
you, you understand what it's like to have damage to your home, to have damage to your property and to really face a pressing need, you know? So I think about something like having to have your roof, roof repaired. Yeah. You know, it's one thing to know you have to repair your roof. It's an entirely different problem to choose how you're going to deal with it. Yeah. And so we, you feel that pressure to get, do something very quickly, right? Because if, yep. if you don't fix the roof, the rain comes in, the wind comes in, you're, you're pouring heat out of your home uh, when you're trying to keep your family warm, those types of things. So you've got that pressure to really yep. get it done. And odds are, particularly if you live in a community that's, there's, where there's been widespread effects, you have more options to choose from then you know what to do with. There's, there's plenty of organizations that'll kind of come in, knock on your door, promise you a quick and affordable fix. But the, the challenge is in that situation, much like leadership, is when you put those interventions into practice, you don't really know if you got what you paid for until the next storm. Yeah. Right. And then it's too late. If you find out that someone did a shoddy job when the next hurricane's rocking and rolling and you've got the water and the wind damaging again or, or probably doing worse, you're in bad shape. And I think the leadership industry, honestly, is a lot like that. Yeah. You know, I think the need is very real. We have to do something. We feel that need to do something. There's no shortage of options for us as individuals, as consumers, or as organizations, as members of organizations. You know, the real problem and the real challenge, I think, is sorting it through. Yeah. And there's a lot of practical wisdom out there. And I think a lot of it comes from very well-intended in, sources. But at times, it, it proves to be neither practical nor wise. Yeah. Uh, and so, and that's that's really the challenge I see as we start to think about how we're going to influence our students, our clients, our organizations in terms of the culture, that leadership culture, in terms of how we think, how we feel and act as leaders. You know, so I think the challenge that, that I would come back to with regard to the way you asked the question, I think there's two answers to it. I think yeah. it's not an either or, it's really a both and, and it's really about constantly blending these things together. I think one is... Um, we're wrestling with this idea of what evidence-based looks like, mm. um, right? And so, yeah. um, you know, I, I think if you, if you, anyone who has taught leadership in a classroom setting uh, and you've got great uh, introspective students, uh, invariably, you're going to be asked the question, why would I trust this academic's perspective on leadership? Uh, they are a scholar. Uh, they're, they're, in, they're, they're doing research. They're in the lab. But have they ever led anything? Yeah. And so, you know, that's that's certainly a, a barrier that I often have to address with students on a pretty regular basis. And and also getting them to look at some of their assumptions when they do look at great leaders. I, as a military organization, we've got examples all around the campus uh, yeah. in terms of artifacts, right? So that it may be a painting, it may be a marble statue, it may be a bronze bust, but we 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 celebrate our leaders of the past. Uh the, the tricky part is is how do you take that the lessons that leader had and translate them to very different contexts. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, that leader may be very astute, very self-aware, able to really look at a situation, look at the environment that they led in and have some examples or advice for how to lead. Uh, but as a consumer, how do you, how do you know that that advice is just as relevant for you today in, in the environment that you're leading? So, you know, I think that evidence is a big part of it. The other thing I think I really struggle with as an educator, um, and I say struggle in the sense that uh, it's a challenge. It's something that I think about a lot. Yeah, is how to how to take that that evidence and orient it 
so it's practically accessible to the student. So I, I know when I when I when I walk out of my my graduate program at Penn State, had an amazing experience, had an incredible advisor, Rick Jacobs, who just who guided me through that entire process and, and challenged me in ways that I did not anticipate challenging, being challenged. Right. So uh, really, really an incredible experience. Really a a, a momentous turning point as, as I think about what I'm able to do for the institution today. I had a lot of passion for leadership from a scholarly perspective. Yeah. And I learned, and I, I, I've, I've told this story to students too. You know, I remember my very first class, I was teaching uh, graduate students, uh, that, that program that I, I graduated from about 10 years prior. I laid my syllabus out. I laid the plan out. And the very first uh, question, very first hand that went up in class that day, young, uh, young officer sitting on the front row, uh, this sounds all really good, sir, but could you just tell us what we need to do to be effective as a leader and, and tell us what not to do so we don't get into trouble? And I realized in that moment, I'm like, I just laid out some things that I am very passionate about, but my students don't yet share that passion. Yeah. And so they didn't see the relevance of why I was going to cover the topics I was going to cover. They didn't understand why it was important that we were approaching this from the perspective that uh, one, the studies measured what we thought they were measuring. They were reliable. And two, that we could actually make some, some useful inferences from what we were reading. And so the, the idea you know, my students remind me on a daily basis that they don't really necessarily want to study leadership as a topic, but every single one of them is actively engaged on a daily basis with practicing leadership. And yeah. so my job as an educator, the challenge as an educator, uh, my job as a director, when I work with faculty who are teaching these courses as well, is, is creating environments where we can really tie together the knowledge with the skills and the abilities that, that really really matter to the student. Well, your your comment about professionalizing leader development, leadership education, leadership learning, we don't even have common definitions that are agreed upon, which would be problematic if you were a pilot or a surgeon. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, so yeah, you mentioned, uh, so you mentioned earlier that, uh, in our conversation, my time in Afghanistan, one of, one of the key things that I had to do there that, that applies to this, this question you're asking. In, in some of the native languages, and there are many native languages in a tribal society, there are simply not words to describe technical things. Yeah. Uh, so they would have to be created. So, so for example, uh, you know, one of the things I, the, the pro, my primary mission with training and education and advising the, the senior Afghan officials who, who really owned the programs, my, my role was there uh, was largely as an advisor to help them make good decisions. But one of the key things we did was leader, uh, excuse me, was English education. Huh. So before I could, I could ask a young Afghan officer to be a pilot, to be a maintenance officer, uh, to be a commander, they had to understand the English language because when we're going to put a technical order, so a, kind of a, an owner's manual, if you will, for an aircraft yep. uh, in front of a, a young airman, they had to know what those words meant they were reading. And so uh, one of the examples that was given to me is in one of the, one of the native languages there, there was one word for petroleum. Now that petroleum may mean aircraft fuel. It may mean lubrication in the form of oil. It, it was also the same word for grease. So you can imagine it, you know, anyone who's ever, you know, changed the oil in your car, you have to even know the right type of oil to put in and you got to put it in the right spots <laughs> or, or they're, or they're not so good at effects. So, you know, so some, 
language is really important. And, and language is important because it comes down to shared meaning. If I say leadership in a classroom and I have a personal definition and my, my, you know, my 15 students each have their own personal definition, yep. the question becomes, what are we really talking about? Yeah. And, but you can appreciate there's, this is where we have to blend that, that evidence and that practical orientation. Yeah. So, because ultimately you have to make meaning of it as a practitioner, as a leader in a way that makes sense for you. But if you start with just what makes sense for you, what else are you missing? Right. So we, we missed the evidence. And so it's not a, you know, it's kind of a chicken or the egg. And, it, and I would say it's a chicken and the egg, uh, you know, where those two things work hand in hand. Uh, we don't, we don't put students through, you know, multiple semesters of leadership education and now say, okay, figure out how, to, how it works. Uh, they yeah. get to practice it on a pretty regular basis. Nor do we just simply put cadets or our students or our clients in situations where, okay, go figure it out, right? Yeah. It's a, always a constant battle to figure out the right timing of the right lessons with the right students. Uh, I think you can appreciate how individualized leadership development is. There's things yeah. that are generally useful. But they don't always, you know, depending on the student's background, their perspective, their culture, uh, where, you know, what part of the country they're from, what experiences they had. I mean, my students who are in, uh, who are leading uh, cadet organizations have different perspectives than those who are part of kind of the, you know, uh, of other less, less influential roles. So some are thinking about what applies right now. Some are thinking about, okay, when I graduate, I'm going to be immediately responsible for a, 150 airmen. So they're, more forward thinking. So it, it's always that constant, constant, constant give and take to connect with each student in a way that the content and the application of it is meaningful. Yeah. Because we're all entering in so many different places. And you can just look at all the variables of personality, background, culture. I mean, you, you name it, right? So if you were to look at the, if you were to look at how we approach leader development and leadership development, through the lens of pilot training, mm. what are we missing? What are, what are opportunities you see? And I know I'm just jumping this on you. <laughs> you are, indeed. You know, That's a so, great question. So, so if we want to develop a world-class pilot, and you've been engaged in that work, and you have a sense of what that work looks like, what are some potential opportunities when it comes to this domain, which is just another training domain? I think it's in some ways, unless of course we're in combat where everything is shifting very, very quickly, it's, it's a little bit of a contained system. Now you might disagree with me because I'm not a pilot and I don't know, but when we get out to, to, to leadership, there's so many variables, but you still have variables of personality, background, any number of different variables as a pilot, individual differences variables. What are some opportunities based on your experience in that domain that could serve leader development well? And I'm going to give you one that I think of right away, just some clear definitions of stuff. <laughs> <laughs> clear <laughs> definitions are, are a great place to start. <laughs> uh, you know, and, and, you know, I would say you know, I'm having some flashbacks to, to pilot training, which was a very demanding experience. You know, we started every mission within the first few missions, you as a student were expected to brief the mission. So you set all the expectations for the different phases of flight, where you're going to go, how are you going to navigate, uh, all those types of things. So, you know, I think it starts on a foundation of, of what's knowable. 
Yeah. And, and I think those definitions are a key part of that. You know, so much of flying a plane is technical. Uh, it's not the only part of it, but there is, there's a lot of technical expertise. Yeah. You've got to know what happens when you push this button. You got to know, <laughs> you, and you got to know what happens in some cases, what happens when you push it harder. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's variable. Yeah. Right. And so it, it's not, you know, it's not just as simple as you push the stick forward and houses get bigger and you push this, pull the stick back and houses get smaller. Because <laughs> uh, eventually, eventually, if you pull back long enough, they start getting bigger again because the airplane doesn't keep, can't go up forever. Right. So <laughs> I think, I think from a foundational perspective, that technical expertise, that technical knowledge and the skills that are associated with, with exercising that physical machine as complex or complicated as it might be um, are foundational, you know, and I, I kind of alluded before, I, 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 don't, I don't remember how many trips I had to make out to my car after going into the publications office and being handed ream upon ream of printed paper yeah. of things that I was expected to one organize so I could find that what I needed to find when I needed it. Yeah. Uh, and but two, start committing things to memory. Yeah. So you start with those foundations so much of you know when when I look back on my experience and I've you know I've been an instructor in uh in two two major weapon systems two two big heavy airplanes did not have the opportunity to be an instructor in, in a pilot training environment but when I look back on those experiences the things that challenged my students the most typically were not the technical know-how mm. students you know I, I work with incredibly bright incredibly capable people on a day in and day out basis. They had, they, every one of them had the horsepower to learn uh, definitions, to learn what switches did, to, to get mechanically uh, down what it was to fly. And so this kind of leads me to that second aspect. And I I think it's started reading a book here recently. that talks about the idea of radical uncertainty. And this, this concept is is simply a way to explain that there are the things that we do not know that we do not know. Yeah. Okay. And so, and so, so much of what makes an, an Air Force pilot, any pilot, uh, and, and, and I think this applies to a lot of what really matters and what really sets people apart. You know, you know the technical competency is a foundation, yep. but it's the professionalism. And so the term we use when we talk about developing judgment in our pilots is this idea of airmanship. And so it's making decisions where there are not clear answers. Yeah. Um, you may not know what the effect of your decision is, um, or that you even need to make that decision in this moment. So I think that's the great challenge we're really up against. You know, there's the there's the technical, I'd like to think it works this way. And that's the question my student on that first day of class several years ago was asking me. Yeah. Just just give me the tech one. Give me the <laughs> checklist that says how to be an effective leader. Yeah. Um, and and I, I I freely admit that uh, we had a good laugh about it in the moment, right? And so we talked about, you know, if I if I had that checklist, do you think I'd be here teaching you? No, 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 no. And uh, we had a great laugh. You know, it was a it was a great conversation with the students on that day, and it really set the stage. But what we're really getting at, you know, leadership, you can be informed, you can understand the theories, you can understand how the theories are supposed to work. Yep. But our organizations are complex. Yeah. And complex is the right word to use here. You know, if, if either one of us actually had to have gotten a car and commuted uh, to work this morning, you, know, you can you can get in the car, you can you can put your seatbelt on, foot on the brake, you push the start button. And it, in, assuming everything's in working order, it works the same way every time. Yeah. 
as a leader, if we fall into the trap that it's going to work the same way every time, we're in trouble. Yeah. And we're severely limiting not only our own status and influence as a leader, but we're having a profound effect or lack thereof upon the organizations that were there to serve and the people that were there to serve. Yeah. Uh, because, because they are not all the same. And, and they're not even the same this morning and, and this afternoon, yeah. right? So I think you know the idea is that you know those organizations organizations are complex and and as leaders we have to adapt and that's that idea of judgment and those unknown unknown when we discover new things we have to give up sometimes that there's going to be a right answer and we have to find the good one we have to find the one that's going to work well we have to be willing to accept risk and when it goes well, wonderful. And when it's not going the way way we want it to, we have to be active and engage with that and make adjustments, right? And so, you know, when I think about what I would train a student in, in an emergency, for, you know, preparing for emergency situations, we did a lot of that training in simulations. So yeah. I think that's a, that's a great, great, when I think about what we do from an education perspective, bringing simulations into the education process, whether that's through something like a leadership assessment center, uh, whether that's through activities and active learning environments that we create in our classrooms. Those are all great examples of where students in a relatively low stakes environment can try stuff out. If you, if you crash the sim, the sim instructor hits the reset button, right? It's like playing a, it's a huge video game. Yeah. Uh, if, if you don't, if your tactics and your strategy don't work, you get another, another life and you get to try it again. You know, it doesn't quite necessarily work the same way in the real world, but, but when students can build that, that self-efficacy in that simulated and training environment, Yep. A large reason why an institution like the Air Force Academy exists and why we invest so much authority and, and power in the cadets to make decisions early in, in their uh, adult lives is, is so they when they go out in the real world, they do understand what some of the consequences can be. They understand that there are still safety nets, but they're a little bit further down and they're not as soft. Yeah. And so... So, you know, getting them to accept and act with confidence in those uh, in the face of those unknowns and and getting them to start thinking about how they learn from each experience. Yeah. You know, so, you know, so much it was, uh, you know, here's another lesson I would share from my flying time. You know, oftentimes we'd fly very long missions. You know, when I was uh, working on the staff at, uh, at, at the wing down at Charleston at the time, it was about 10 years ago, I had a full time job. In, in an office where I was was supporting the wing's mission and in, ensuring that we were ready for exercises and inspections and those types of things. Yeah, and and so that meant, but I still need to maintain proficiency as a pilot. I was yep. that was my core technical expertise. So what that meant was, I routinely flew on either Friday night or Saturday night. And the benefit of doing that was, you know, I. I mean, we had their check boxes, right? We called them beans. So I had to get so many landings every month. I had to get so many certain types of landings every month. And so if I did the night assault landing uh, with NVGs on, it counted as my, it it was more difficult. It was more complex. So I could not, I could check off more things by doing the more complex version of it. So I routinely flew on those late night sorties so I could get more bang for the buck. When I would when you come back as an instructor, so you, you go, you go up, you fly, you, you do your things to maintain currency and proficiency. That was just part of the mission. The other part of the mission is the debrief. Yeah. 
And so in the debrief, and, and bear in mind, if you started your sortie at eight o'clock, maybe you landed around two. By the time you made it back to the debrief room, it's now like 2.30, three o'clock in the morning. You can imagine, so there's, and there's a couple options there, right? A lot of times we would come, we would do maybe an initial debrief and try to schedule coming back during the daytime. But depending yep. on everyone's schedule, particularly in, in the time when I was flying the C-17 out of Charleston, um, oftentimes those training missions were so critical to making sure that our that our flyers were ready to, to turn back out the door and head down, down range in a theater. So oftentimes what we had to do was take care of that debrief in the moment. And the risk or the temptation in that moment is to talk about what went wrong. And uh, cer- certainly very important. Unfortunately, what that meant was it came at the cost of talking about what went right. Yeah. And so, so much of development uh, that I see in the stu- you know, in a student, in a client, in a colleague, um, you know, it's it's incredibly valuable to to make sure that people are aware that something that's going on is not going the way they intend or planned. Yeah. I think it is just as important to build that self-efficacy and remind people that you did this right, that this produced the desired outcome yeah. uh, and getting them and asking questions. I, you know, I, I was eye-opening sometimes to see a student do something right, but sometimes you had the sense that they weren't confident they were doing it right. So you would ask students questions about it and you come to find out, you know, they, they did it right. Cause they remember seeing it done that way. You know, maybe when they're in pilot training, maybe when they're, when they're getting in another uh, training schoolhouse, but they hadn't seen it in so long, they couldn't remember if that was exactly the right way to do it. And so they may or may not do it that way the next time if it's not reinforced. So, so getting them to understand not only what's right, but why it's right and why it was right for that particular situation was uh, so critical in that training environment. I, and I think, you know, I, I routinely use some of these analogies when I, when I talk with my students. And, you know, a, about 40% of our graduates do go on. To, to be pilots from the Air Force Academy. So this connects with a large percentage of the students, not all of them. I have to, I have to bring in examples from other places as well. But I think it's a, it's a really interesting question I haven't quite thought of in, the, in those terms. But you know, ultimately, I think it's, the, it's that blend between what we know about leadership and what we don't know about the context where, where students are going to be applying it. And, and bringing both of those things into the conversation, I think, is so incredibly important. So Bob, you you had my mind cooking. I'm going to talk for like two minutes here and just download, do. download what I heard, but also try and 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 make some sense of based on kind of my my perspective. And this is really 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 cool. Have you ever read the article, A Leader's Framework for Decision Making? It's an HBR article, Harvard Business Review. I, you know what? I I think I have. I think it's been a few years. Though. Okay, I, I will. It's... Yeah, I think it's I think it's older. I'll put it in the show notes and I'll send you a copy. Thank you. But they do this really cool, they, they, they divide problems from simple to complicated to complex to chaotic. Now, this is, this is January 7th, yesterday, January 6th. We had a little bit of a chaotic situation happening in Washington, D.C. That was very different than some of the decisions that a leader was making at Sherwin-Williams. And it was a simple problem as, as a leader. And, and then, of course, you have CEOs who are making complicated and very complex decisions. And so for me, what's interesting, it, it's different if you're learning on a Cessna than a C-17. The complexity is very different, I would imagine. 
<laughs> Stop me if I'm wrong. <laughs> you, you can get yourself in, in trouble in a Cessna really quick, but yeah, but true. there's a lot more than that. I mean, yeah. if, if for no other reason than you're managing a crew. Yeah, it's complex enough that it takes multiple people to operate all the systems. Yeah, yeah. So, so when I think about how I'm reflecting on what you've said, is I think one limitation maybe we have at times about leader development is that this is simplistic, but there's these four different levels. So at times, if you think about, for instance, the curriculum of the collegiate leadership competition, that's very simplistic decision making. That's a simplistic, but it's foundational and it's needed, right? Correct. But but great leaders have to have an understanding at all. So so what I'm doing is the, the connection I'm making is a, a limitation can be that maybe we don't have some of the core definitions, but also a limitation can, can be that we don't have levels of complexity. I, I don't know of a course, maybe it exists, on on leading through chaos, leading through complicated problems leading. And this article does a very nice job of beginning to have that conversation. But I think at times we don't scaffold. And I did another podcast with a scholar named Susan Comavez, and we talked a lot about scaffolding. If I want to teach negotiation, I probably should build some listening skills in the individual, some skills of influence tactics, and, and we can scaffold up to this person being masterful at negotiating. But we have to scaffold that. And I don't know in leadership education that we have that scaffolding or even models of scaffolding. I don't know if that makes sense, but it, it does. You know, if I could, if I could jump in real yeah, quick, yeah. You know, that, that's one of the things that we've spent a lot of time in, uh, in the de- ongoing continuous process improvement of our leadership core at the Academy yeah. and thinking about that very issue. Yeah. Um, our, our legacy model at the Air Force Academy, it's referred to as the officer development system, kind of builds on that complexity. I think one of the, to anyone who's listening, I think the word of caution I would offer here is, is, is I think you're exactly right, Scott, in terms of scaffolding, in terms of building upon foundations. Uh, what we can't afford to do is ever to, you know, as we define those levels and the way those levels are defined uh, at the Air Force Academy is in terms of personal leadership, interpersonal leadership, teams, and then the organizational level of leadership. Yep. Um, but you can appreciate, uh, while for the novice, the talk about how to lead yourself, how to be self-aware, you know, those would be foundational things we might do in that individual level course. Yep. Um, one of the things that we've run into in the past as a particular challenge is that we my words get conceptually lazy. And we talk about individual leadership as if it exists by itself. Uh, when when it always, I mean, it always exists in that broader system where leadership is interdependent. Yeah. You are part of units and groups and teams. Yep. Yep. And those unit groups and teams um, work together in inter-team systems, multi-team systems to really that's how the organization, most organizations, uh, particularly large ones, are structured. You know, and, and it kind of you know, certainly harkens back to some industrial area era, excuse me, ideas on how production can be efficient, yeah. right? And so, you know, the, the challenge there is that how do we how do we provide that foundation to the individual and make sure that individual is aware that it's not just my identity and and our identities are incredibly important. Yeah, but our identities always exist in a system. Yeah. Right. 
Uh, yep. And so it's that, it's that blending, it's that managing that tension and those paradoxes. Well, and I also heard in, in your, some other elements, I mean, there, you, have the, you have the element of practice. There's a practice field. One of my favorite topics is technologies enabling disruption. And I can't wait until we actually have a, a Star Trek holodeck, a simulator where we can put someone in a situation and they actually can practice negotiating. They can practice a complicated problem that they need to lead or navigate the team through. I, I think that's going to be invaluable. We don't have that yet, but there's so much opportunity there because in the context of flight, you have an opportunity to practice. You have an opportunity to debrief, make meaning of that experience. And it's real. You were actually flying. It wasn't a five minute experience kind of in a classroom where we did a fishbowl activity and then we're done. There's consequences. It's real practice, right? So yes, and you, go ahead. I was going to say, but you can appreciate how expensive that is. Oh, yes. Yes. Right? And time and so, consuming, and, and I, time consuming yeah, the, right? The, the time, the yes. resources, you know, and I think, you know, the leadership field has done really well with things like leadership assessment centers. Uh, and I got some, some really wonderful experience at Penn State, the, the IO program, the industrial organizational psychology program ran one for the Schreier Honor College there at Penn State. And sure. so, you know, a couple times a semester, we got to bring in students who had aspirations of going off to work in businesses and industry. And it was intensive. They had homework they did before they showed up, just like they were getting hired for a new job. And it wasn't a five minute experience. It started at, you know, we'll say eight o'clock in the morning and it went to four o'clock in the afternoon. So um, you had to, and those experiences they had throughout the course of the day tied together. Yeah. So it, it's still, there's still certainly an element of simulation. Right. Yep. But when you looked at what the student experienced in that, they really immersed themselves into the roles. They took on the job titles that they were given. Yep. And, and, you know, not only did they, you know, you, you have a lot of trained assessors, but you have essentially what I'll call actors who set the stage, you know, yeah. people who walked in the room as a boss, yep. people who walked in the room as a disgruntled customer yeah. and, and wanted to have those conversations. Um, and then the real value, I think, of those experiences for the student was what was offered to the student after the fact. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't just their own experience, but they did some you know, structured reflection on their own. We provided them interpretation of uh, psychological instruments that explained their tendencies and why those tendencies were strengths in one situation, but were their downfalls in others. But you can, I mean, to put that on, and I don't, it's been, it's been a number of years, you're, you know, maybe, maybe 15 to 20 students who participate, you probably had another 15 to 20 graduate students who were supporting yeah. it. You probably yeah. had on top of that, another 15 to 20 uh, alumni that we would invite in from industry who helped provide that perspective as well. So very intensive, uh, very valuable, but you can appreciate, uh, you know, once we find something that works, we love yeah. to teach it to the rest of the organization as something that everyone ought to be doing. But when you look at something like that, the scalability of it, uh, yeah. what I can really do in an undergraduate environment at a te teaching institution is keep my section sizes low. So as I can, as I have the opportunity to provide feedback on an activity in class, as I have opportunity to provide feedback on an assignment that a student turns in, that I'm actually able to do that to some degree of me that's meaningful to the student, but that is wholly inadequate or wholly different than providing that one-on-one -on -one 
here's eight hours. You're going to immerse yourself in this. And now we're going to spend another three to four hours debriefing it with you over the course of the next couple of weeks. So you're right. You know, we have a real, real challenge. You know, we, particularly in an undergraduate environment where our students have a number of years more, more often than not before they're going to st- uh, step out into the workplace and step out into the world. Helping them to make those connections is really difficult. I, I can't imagine what pilot training would have been like if I had spent you know, several weeks in academics. But when I got to the flight line where I actually had to fly, I was <laughs> on my own. Right. Um, well, it's, it's no know, different that, than a surgeon saying, you know, you go to the surgeon and they say, you say, have you ever done this? They say, no, but I've read a lot about it. You know, <laughs> no. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, so, I stayed in a holiday Inn express last night. <laughs> uh, that, that fixes everything. You know, I, I'll, I'll never, I, my very first training sortie, I was still a kid at the Academy going through a program called flight screening that kind of got me set up uh, and, and for for pilot training, had you know done all my studying, had read, had 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 a conversation with my instructor, and um, you know he he kind of walked me through taxiing the airplane out, and it and it was all I could do at you know at, at a, a pace that was barely faster than a walk to keep it keep the airplane centered on the taxiway. Yeah, uh, yeah. you know it's just it's 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 you're steering with your feet instead of your hands. It's not like driving at all, <laughs> and so we get to the hold short line. So that's that that line that says you're not in the controlled airspace. And if you cross it, you're on the runway. And so we get clearance from Tower to take off. And the instructor looks at me and goes, you've got it. And, <laughs> and you know, if you want to talk about faking it until you make it, like I had no confidence that I could do it. But uh, that's another challenge. I mean, so you've, yes. got the scale, you've got the scalability challenge. You've got the time challenge. I think the learning sometimes is distant from the work. I think yes. I've said that on I've said that I think I've said that on this podcast before but if it's medical education that's generally happening in the healthcare system I'm with patients some of the time if it's flight training the learning is very close to the work I'm actually going to fly at some at some point when it's leader development oftentimes we're sitting in a classroom and they might 2 hours later go to a student organization that they're a member of not have any of that learning on their mind because it's not close it's not close to the work it's not observed it's not supervised it's to to ah. to to flag that learner to lock back in to this content they have to be cuz that first time you flew you were concentrating right in that old kind of unconscious incompetence um what is it unconscious incompetence conscious incompetence conscious competence. I mean, you were, you were, and then you get to unconscious competence, probably a flight number a hundred. You aren't even thinking about it anymore. A lot of it, right? That's another challenge at times is that what we're training for at times. And I think the military has a better advantage than most, but that what we're training for leadership, it's sometimes distant from the work. I don't know if that makes sense. It does. And so what comes to mind is you're sharing that and I'm going to date myself here a little bit, uh, but I think you'll appreciate this uh, analogy. And if you haven't, if it doesn't work for your listeners, I just encourage them to, to stream it and check it out. But you remember the Karate Kid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been and watching you, Cobra and, Kai. Yeah. And you and you remember that Daniel uh, did a lo- lot of chores for Mr. Miyagi and yeah. did not understand how that connected to the actual. He was learning. Yeah. But he didn't understand how it connected to the work. Yeah. And there's this kind of culminating scene where Mr. Miyagi presses him and the light bulbs go off for Daniel. Yeah. Right. And so one of the one of the things that 
that I think is often missing in our, our learning environments is, and I think there's great value in allowing the student to wrestle with their personal definition of leadership. Sure. And I'm not suggesting that we don't do that. At the same time, one of the things that I've I picked up, particularly in our students, um, and this is likely to be true elsewhere in the world, seeing as how we pull our students from society, yeah. <laughs> uh, is, is this idea that leadership is a position. And to the extent that a student, a professional, latches on to the idea that being a leader means holding a specific role, to the extent that they do not hold that role or don't see the role in the light of the content that they're learning, those lessons get lost. Yeah. And so I think one of the one of the great strengths of the work we're doing at the Air Force Academy today is really working to bridge that learning and the work experience together. Yeah. Uh, where it's timely, it's relevant. Yep. Um, when when a student comes to understand leadership as a solution to the problem of bringing people together to do things collectively, that that changes their perspective on what leadership is, and they cease to think about if I'm going to be the I, this will apply President to me if I, if I get to be the squadron commander, you know, the cadet who's in charge of the unit that cadets are a part of, yeah. um, uh, and, and gets them to bring the lessons into their experience. That, Wait a second. I don't have to be the team leader to have a role in influencing how my teammates come together and we work interdependently to get work done. Yeah. And so to the extent we can start shining light on those perspectives for our students, I think there's a lot of ground to be gained. Well said. I think we pause there. We've given we've given listeners plenty and ourselves to reflect on. <laughs> I've got lots of notes. I got more homework. Thanks. <laughs> well, I also I just want to say one final thing. I, I did appreciate your mention of you know the, the kind of the appreciative nature, the need for the appreciative nature of that debriefing, that it's not all the negatives. Of course, there's areas for development for all of us, many of them. And sometimes our strengths are our areas for development, but really taking the time to reflect on what we did do well, what our strengths are, I think that is a nice balancing activity for sure. Because it's hard. It's difficult work, right? It's very hard. As we latch on to our tried and tested uh, industrial era paradigms, if it isn't broke, we don't fix it, which often means we don't pay attention to what's working well. Uh, and so I think it's a, it's a great reminder that we need to understand how it works, why it's supposed to work that way, and, and attend to that as well. Because it's not, as, not, not everyone is going to discover those things on their own. And yeah. we, we have a great role as educators and trainers uh, to, to influence uh, that next generation in that way. Bob, I always end off the podcast by asking folks what they're listening to, streaming. <laughs> I mentioned that I've, I'm watching season three of Cobra Kai, which is nice. Have you watched that? Have you watched it? I, I've not. Okay, you need to watch that series. It's on Netflix, Bob. If you're a Karate Kid fan, you need to watch that. Season three is getting a little, it's getting a little too campy for me, but it's it is an interesting <laughs> view. It's a really great series if you like those movies. But I'll check it out. What are, what are you listening to? What are you streaming? What are your favorite podcasts? Yeah. What stands so, out for uh, you? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to poke fun at you because I haven't commuted for the better part of 11 months now. Uh, <laughs> and so uh, and commuting is when I did all of my streaming, my podcast and, and, the, and my audible books and some of Me those too. types of things. Me so um, I, I've done something that's rather archaic. Uh, I've, I've started reading again. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, so you know, let me think, you know, I think, there's some good ones and some bad ones. You know, I think the two that had the biggest impression on me as, as I look back about the last year, I, I read Endurance 
which is Lansing's account of the Shackleton expedition. And I read that with two of my kids, my, my two oldest. Oh, nice. Um, and I had some really, really interesting conversations, not only about uh, Shackleton's leadership, but really just about uh, the team that he built and, and, and what it meant to be, I mean, you want to talk about setbacks. Um, everything that could have gone wrong went wrong and went wrong in crazy degrees. And yet somehow on that expedition, you know, they brought back every original crew member. If I remember the book, it's been almost a year now. Uh, yeah. But if I remember the book right, you know, the, the one person they lost was actually a stowaway. But you wouldn't know that, by the way, that that person got incorporated in the crew. And then the other book that really has got me thinking a lot was David Epstein's Range. I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but he takes a look he takes a look at specialization and generalization. And so, you know, so much, you know, you know, when I was growing up, I was told if I was ever going to play professional baseball that I had better been enrolled in T-ball when I was 3 years old, right? Uh, I needed to figure it out, right? You you've seen the picture of uh, you know, someone like Tiger Woods. Yeah. Very early in his in his uh, childhood learning that game. You know, someone someone like Michael Phelps who from you know, from the time that he was learning to crawl and walk was also learning to swim. Yeah. And so, but when we look at the modern world and some of the things we talked about, particularly about those, that radical uncertainty, those unknown unknowns, you know, it seems like there's this growing importance that we need people who are innovative and creative. And so that probably means they're integrating experiences along a wide range of what life has to offer. So that was, uh, that one really kind of tickled my brain and got me thinking quite a bit too, as I think about one, I think it, it resonated with me as somebody who you know, graduated with an electrical engineering degree, went on to become a learning skills instructor, flew for the Air Force for 10 years, and, uh, and then transitioned into being an educator. I think about how I bring those experiences together on a pretty regular basis. So it resonated with me in that, in that way. But it's also got me asking more questions in terms of what we're doing to best prepare uh, leaders for the challenges that we haven't even thought of yet. That's great. Well, sir, I hope I hope you have a wonderful 2021. We need to do this again. We Please, this has been very enjoyable. Talk about it's what been, we're learning. You know, such such an important part about leadership is reflection, and you forced me to do that. I don't always make the time <laughs> for it. So, <laughs> thank you. Uh, well, take care. Be well. We'll do. It's been uh, greatly appreciated. It's really an honor to have this this opportunity today. So, thank you for thinking of me. Thanks so much, Bob. Bye bye. All right. Take care. I really enjoyed this conversation, and it was so much fun to reflect with Bob. He had mentioned the importance of reflecting towards the end of the episode, and it's critical. And it's fun to have someone to reflect with. We also, I'm consistently amazed at the opportunity that we have to look to other domains. What can we learn from flight training? What can we learn from developing a world-class surgeon? There's lessons there. We need to look to those domains for some of those lessons, for some of those best practices as we continue to develop our craft. And I really enjoyed our conversation about some of the barriers to leader development, to leadership learning, not because I want to be negative, but because I think we need to have a solid understanding of those so that we can work those areas of opportunity and better develop leaders prepare people to be successful when serving in these informal and formal roles because it's incredibly difficult work. Bob, thanks for the work that you do. Thanks for your time. I'm excited for our next conversation. Take care, everybody, and be well. You have been listening to the Practical Wisdom for Leaders podcast. 
If you liked what you heard, please share it with others and let them know what we're up to. And one last quick reminder to click subscribe so you know when we publish new episodes. And of course, we'd love to hear your feedback. You can stay in touch with me by visiting www.scottjallen.net or any number of social media platforms. Be well, be safe, and make a difference wherever you are on this beautiful planet. And now, here's Kate's twin sister, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.